episode 14 with Aaron Pritchett. had a great conversation with Aaron. It's my first time actually meeting uh, him, and we had a great conversation. Super nice guy, uh, super talented as well, and I really respect what he's been doing. Uh, I know you're going to really enjoy this podcast. Also, don't forget, uh, In Session with Darren Walters is now available on Stitcher and Google Play Music. And if you're listening to uh, it on iTunes, please uh, rate this podcast if you could. And also subscribe, listen to all the other great episodes. We have some great ones coming up as well. Uh, So let's sit back and relax and listen to the story of Aaron Pritchett. We're here at the Chop Steakhouse in Richmond, B.C., in uh, a nice room, actually. Beautiful building, period. Yeah, I went awesome. to the front desk and said, hey, do you have a room like I could use for doing a podcast or something? And they said, yeah, well, you could uh, rent one of our meeting facilities. I'm thinking, oh, how much is that going to cost? <laughs> well, you talk to our sales department right. and the catering department. And I said, why don't I just walk over to the Chop Steakhouse and ask the nice girl over there? And she said, oh, yeah, we got this nice little room back at the back. And yeah, whatever you need. It's great. It's like, perfect. Awesome. Service? Yeah, I know. It's like I figure it's one of those things you don't you don't know what you can get until you ask, right? And then uh, just you know, don't go to the front desk. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's the worst. They don't know anything. Anyways, nice to have you here. We're here with Aaron Prochette, and uh, just first time meeting. Yeah, uh, I've I've heard a lot about you, and also I'm you know friends with Shane, friends mm-hmm. with uh, your great drummer, um, and they're both great guys. Uh, yeah. Awesome guys. Did a uh, podcast with Jason uh, a little while ago. Actually, one with Shane tomorrow. Um, and you're lucky to have those guys in the band. They're uh, rock solid. Uh, yeah. Section. Besides being phenomenal musicians, um, what I did is over the years, I mean, I've been in, in the industry over 20 years playing with bands and, and uh, you, you realize certain personalities just don't work. Yeah. Regardless of the musicianship that they, you know, that they behold. Um and what I've always said is get rid of the poisons, get rid of the toxins. Uh, don't stick around or, or keep around the guys that that are bad for the rest of the group, bad seeds. And over the years, uh, I did that. I got, you know, I, I took those things out, those elements out. And you end up with guys like Shane and Jason and uh, John Spinarski and Scott Smith who are uh, and Kirby Barber, who are all phenomenal people besides being amazing musicians. And I feel like the better musicians are better people anyways That's, they are yeah yeah i found that over the years you find i don't want to class them as a b and c but there's kind of that you know classification if you want to put yep. in musicianship and you get the a or the a plus guys and they just are great to work with they don't have an ego they don't have anything to prove they're confident they yep. just have fun and deliver and it's easy yeah and then you find that section in the B section that, you know, they all have a little bit of an ego. They all have something they're trying to prove. Yeah. Um, they make mistakes. It's never their fault. You know, that whole, whole thing. And that gets to be hard to deal with. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice. I know years ago, uh, in my studio, uh, I decided to take a, a jump up and, and go with, you know, the really, really great guys one time. And, uh, I was nervous about it the first session and it's like, ah, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be difficult. And it was the best session yeah. I yeah. ever had <laughs> in my life. And, you know, they just gave you, 
gave myself a lot of respect. You know, it was easy. They delivered like I've never seen anything before. And yeah. it's just like, okay, I can't go back now. You know, I, I did a, uh, a, a, I was in attendance, basically. I was sitting in on a, a demo session in Nashville um, last year with uh, Derek Rattan, who I've written with, and he's a, an artist as well, and phenomenal person as well, also, with all the success. Yeah. So we're just in uh, Nashville <clears throat> at this studio. Uh, <clears throat> very well-known studio, but you know, I'm sitting in and I'm not realizing anybody who's playing. Um, and then uh, after the session was done, all the guys came in and uh, they said, well, this is Brent Mason and Paul Franklin. I'm like, what? And after 15 minutes of talking to these guys, you just don't realize who they are because they're so unassuming and they're yeah. super nice guys. And yet they've played on so many huge tracks uh, over the last 30 years in country music from, you know, uh, Brent Mason is Chattahoochee from Alan Jackson. He yeah. is that and, and you would never know that he was that guy because he was so nice. And, and it really blew me away. And the best of the best, the cream of the crop just are very humble about what they do. And they just love playing. That's really what it's all about for them. Yeah. That's what it is. They like it so much. Yeah. Um, Mike Francis back, uh, in Toronto, I'm not sure you've worked with him before. No. Pepe. Uh, he was like the king kind of guitar player for years and years in Toronto and recorded on and produced tons of stuff. Um, the first time I had him in, it was just, he's like the Brent Mason of Canada, I yeah. would say. Um, really diverse. And yeah, it was unbelievable. And he practices every day for yeah. hours, like hours. And he doesn't have to. But he does, and it's partially because he just loves it so much. Mm -hmm. And yeah, those sessions were just unreal. You sit back and, okay, we need this type of solo. And it's the first time through. And it's like, uh, yeah, that was... We're good. That was good. <laughs> I have nothing to say. That was Let's move on. Yeah, it's not about the money for these guys either. That was no. the other thing that I realized. That you think it is. You know, they're just, they want to make as much money as possible. And it's not really at all. Yeah, uh, That's secondary. It's about playing. And, you know, obviously a guy like that who sits and plays and practices, you know, you just don't hear that very often. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're the best of the best. Yeah, cool. So let's go back. You, uh, were you born here in Vancouver? I was, yeah, yeah. in Vancouver itself. Yeah, at uh, uh, a little hospital that's now burnt down. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was it like growing up here back then as a young guy? Well, I was only here for the first few years of my life and I, I've been in BC my entire life. So I, I grew up uh, a little place called Jackass, which is, <laughs> believe it or not, on at the foot of Jackass Mountain on Jackass Flats, uh, 1,100 feet up from the Fraser River between Boston Bar and Lytton, BC. Okay. Uh, we owned a restaurant there, a truck stop, and yeah. uh, that was the first seven or eight years of my life and then we moved up to Kitimat which is up north yeah. where the big LNG is going to end up apparently uh lived there for about six years or so and then and then back in Vancouver from then on or Langley mostly North Delta and Langley and uh yeah so I, I kind of grew up in the sticks which goes hand in hand with uh, my career choice yeah because it's uh there's nothing like it especially out here um yeah it's a different sticks than out in the sticks where I'm from. I mean, it's country where I am. I live in the country and, uh, but it's, it's, it's unreal out here. It's yeah. a different way for sure. Well, when I moved out to Langley, for example, from North Delta, North Delta was considered a close suburb, yet you were far away from Vancouver. You were still considered, uh, uh, you know, a suburbia. Yeah. Uh, Langley was the sticks back then. This is the late eighties. And, um, 
you know, now it's, it, it went from 22,000 to 300,000 in, in 20 years. So it's not really so much the country, but, um, yeah, people always said, you know, you're moving out to the middle of nowhere and, you know, you're going to live with cows and, and, uh, it wasn't really even that much then, but it's, it's definitely still, uh, considered, uh, a little hillbilly. You're, you're considered yeah. hillbilly if you live in Langley. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> so when did you get into singing? Is that something that was kind of something that was always part of you when you were young or how did that start out? No, not really. I, I thought I was going to be an actor. I thought for a long time I wanted to be on stage or, or in front of a camera. And, and uh, uh, I always felt that since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I knew I was going to be in the entertainment industry. And people say, well, you're a Leo. That goes hand in hand with being a Leo. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of Leos who are in the entertainment industry now. But uh, I, I thought I was going to do that, going to be an actor. And and uh, uh, singing just sort of happened. Uh, it was something that I enjoyed doing but yeah. just in the shower mainly and my mom knew I sang and and she uh when karaoke first hit back in the early 90s like about 91 I went to a karaoke with my mom and she's like you gotta sing for me and I said I don't really sing and she yeah. said no get, go sing a song so uh I was like okay I don't know what this thing is but I'm reading a screen and I can hear the music so I can sing along to it sure and uh, got up and sang probably one of the toughest songs anybody could ever choose to sing live. And it was uh, uh, Waiting for a Girl Like You from Foreigner. Oh, yeah. The very first song I ever sang live is a song that I've been waiting. I was going to say it's pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I walked back to my seat after and just vibrating the whole way and shaking because I was so nervous. And the guy that was running the karaoke actually came up to me and he said, uh, do you want to work for me? I was like, what are you talking about? Work for what? Carry your gear out to your car for you later? And yeah. and uh, he said, no, I want you to host these shows. I want you to be, you're a great singer. I was like 21 years old thinking, what? You're crazy. And uh, sure enough, I was 20 years old. And, and uh, sure enough, it just sort of snowballed from there. I mean, it's a much longer story from then. But yeah. that was the first time I sang in front of anybody and sang, period. And still didn't sing with a band for another three years after that. Yeah, so it's, in a way, it's a little late. Like compared to a lot of people who start singing when they're young. Yeah. So were you, as far as acting, were you doing any type of acting before that? <laughs> acting Thing. somewhat. Yeah. I was, I was uh, doing extra work in TV and movies. Yeah. Uh, I had an agent getting paid five bucks an hour. You know, majority of the hours you're sitting around doing nothing. Uh, and I remember working on a few different movies. And the, the first real movie that I worked on was this movie called uh, The Extras with John Travolta. Yeah. So it was funny because my mom was a huge John Travolta fan. And um, so I'm, I'm working every day and seeing this guy, you know, pass me by every day and thinking yeah. this is kind of cool. Uh, three months of that. And I, I think you see my right leg. <laughs> in the, and that's it the entire movie and then i worked uh, the second movie i worked on was a really popular movie called cousins with ted dance and oh, yeah. isabella rossellini and i just worked on that for a week and you see me clear as day in this movie and it was the first time that i ever had that experience of being on something that the entire you know a, a large group of public would be able to see and people actually said were you in that movie i saw you in that i, yeah. I think that was you so uh yeah it was kind of funny and that was my first real uh time that i got to you know work on a set and get to know that and i, I you know what to be honest with you i didn't like it because it was too yeah. long of a process yeah it's pretty hurry up and wait mm. that typical saying yeah it was and and now because i play live on stage i get to see that reaction from these people immediately yeah you know you're, you're you hit the stage and everybody's going crazy and it's 
it's a, it's an immediate thing. It's not a process that takes eight months to finally get a movie out or a TV show. So uh, yeah, I like the process now as opposed to being uh, on film. <laughs> yeah, because it's a real daunting long days and um, and back, especially when you start and you get auditions and yeah, all that stuff. It just that's yeah. That's I don't, I don't enjoy the process. No, <laughs> no, and even shooting videos because that's as close as I get to it. Really, I've, yeah. I've done some TV shows and things like that, but nothing uh nothing compares to playing live with a band when you uh shoot a video i mean i shot a video three weeks ago still waiting to see the first cut of it yeah and it's like i just want this thing out the next day but uh yeah it's 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 too much of a long process for me it's interesting seeing yourself on tv or film for the first time yeah and and but then it all eventually it gets to be well there I am or you don't even bother looking anymore and yeah. uh it's funny when you when you see a baseball game or anything like that they pan over to an audience member and people freak out because they're on tv <laughs> yeah and I think as an artist you kind of get well it's just a common thing you're on tv all the time but for a lot of people or most people never get on tv yeah get not get anything like that no. so that's you know that's kind of a neat thrill um I remember the first time I was on tv and it was just back in that day and I was pretty young um our family had a, a tv show and um it, watching and you know and the phone was just we, we were watching yeah. our special on tv because we never got to see it there was no preview or anything it was just right. it's done it's going to be on Friday night and I remember watching and we're like two minutes into it and the phone starts ringing like crazy and everyone's calling hey you're on tv i know we really want to watch it yeah. <laughs> just put, put the phone down and call us in an hour you know right. yeah um but back then that's you know everyone just called yeah no- you know it was really funny that i found recently was uh, i went to a canucks game and i'm sitting behind the uh, one of the uh, nets i was about nine rows up so i've been on tv a lot and and you know like i said i've done some movies lately and tv shows and uh you know, I've seen lots of things, videos, you know, 30 plus videos that you get to see fairly, fairly often. Yeah. And I was at this Canucks game and I'm looking for myself on because uh, I saw the replay of the game the yeah. next day and I'm looking for myself. Oh, yeah, there I am. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I found that really interesting for myself. But yeah, it's it's kind of funny. And yeah, you're right. <clears throat> Hardly anybody gets the chance to be on TV. And that's really what everybody wants. I don't know why, but everybody wants to you know, get recognized and be seen. Yeah. Yeah. I guess now with social media, YouTube and Facebook live, everyone has a chance to, to shoot a little video and and the world can see them. I mean, that's, that's different. I mean, that's why it just takes off. So, so quickly, because it's their chance to see themselves on a public forum. And it's like being on TV in a certain, it really is. Yeah, for sure. You can, you can get people to tune into it on YouTube, for example, of, you know, a live podcast, you know, videotaping of it or whatever but yeah and it, it's everybody wants to get attention yeah <laughs> and well, nowadays i'm i'm actually not about that anymore i yeah. used to be but not so much anymore yeah it's funny when you get older you when you're younger it's about that and you get older it's like you want to disappear a bit more yeah 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 so 20s you started uh doing the karaoke thing mm. um and then you said if a couple of years later you had started a band yeah i think before that though i was uh invited to do um well, I guess I, I, I was in a talent search. Uh, again, my mom. Yeah. She, 
Thanks, mom. She uh, she turned me on to this talent search that was going on in BC, and it was a cross Canada talent search. So eventually, you'd make it to the finals uh, in Hamilton. Uh, so she said, "Well, I put I paid the twenty dollars, and you got to pick two songs, and they're gonna play with the band." And I I had no idea, you know, what songs to play. I didn't know how to play with the band. Nothing. So I went into this talent search, and it was really strange because there was a lot of very uh, talented people that had been playing with bands for many years. Yeah. And here's this 22 year old kid, uh, barely even understands what singing, you know, what it takes to be a singer yeah. and an entertainer. And, uh, I get up on stage with the band seven rounds later, I find myself in Hamilton in this Canadian finals, wow. uh, and just flying by the seat of my pants. And, and I met Paul Brandt there. He was the Alberta rep and I was the BC rep. Um, Paul didn't win, but he, he came in second and then his career took off and turned into, you know, the Canadian man that he is. And, uh, my career took a little bit longer to, um, to develop and, and get any sort of any success at all. Another 10 years actually from then. So, um, it was a really great first experience and I really got a rush out of playing with a band. It was like, wow, these guys are just, you know, this, this is, this is what I want to do. I think it's sometimes going into a competition like that when you don't have a background or experience is frightening, but yet you, you don't know you're just open, right? Yeah. So you're not thinking you have, well, I better not do this. I better do not do that. Or I, I think I should do this. It's just, you're just yourself. So, yeah. um, there's, I think something that actually is really uh, great about that. I think for me anyways, during that competition, there was, uh, the second to last round, I think it was um, my well the the entire sound went down and there was maybe 400 people there and I'm singing a song I think I'm singing Shameless from Garth Brooks which yeah. is not another not easy song to sing um, and the entire sound went down and I had to react most people would just stop yeah I've seen it happen most people just stop uh, I put the mic down and just sang to the crowd and they loved it and I was like this is thankfully I did this and I learned that right away that no matter what the show's got to go on in some form and uh, that was for me the turning point in understanding that I need to entertain these people even at the worst case scenario time and it happened and and was one of those things where people still talk about it to this day which is a really cool thing so yeah you've uh, you've got to you learn on the way up and I didn't know any better so I just kept going yeah yeah it's funny how those little moments where you can lose power or lose sound or something ends up being at the moment you're thinking, Oh crap, this is going to, yeah, you know, what are we going to do? What's... And it happened to us at our, at uh, our family theater quite a few years ago, right in the middle of the show, bam, power all went out in the whole area. So we just grabbed our acoustics and, and sang the rest of the show. Yeah. And the same thing, people still come, and talk. You remember that show when the power for them, they think they've got something that nobody else yep. got. And they remember that. And you think, oh, okay, no, no lights, no sound, no, all those right. things that you think that are important. Um, and if you can still, I think that's a good test. If you can turn the lights off or, or turn the power off and still entertain people. Yeah. You're good at what you're doing. And then they tell other people and they're like, wow, that must've been a cool thing to see. And yeah, it is. Yeah. We've had that in Port Alberni. I think it was the entire power went down. We just grabbed uh, the the organizer grabbed a bunch of candles. We sat around right at the front of the stage and 
and played for the crowd acoustically. We didn't have all acoustics, but we had one. And uh, and then, you know, Jason was just playing the front of the stage with, as a drum. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, yeah, Shane or whoever was playing bass back then was just doing a boom, boom, boom. boom. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really cool. <laughs> An experience that you don't get all the time. Yeah, yeah. So you finished a competition. Yeah. Uh, you came back. And what was your thought? Were you thinking, okay, I got to keep trying to keep this rolling? Yeah, I was dejected, I have to admit, because I, I you know, I didn't place at all. If I was out of 10, 10th, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, But it did kind of light a bit of a fire in me. And I thought, well, I want to do this more often. So I I had a band put together for me and I started a jam out in Gabby's Country Cabaret in Langley. Mm -hmm. And uh, every Sunday night I got to play with these guys and we'd play all these, you know, live jukebox Um, And then again, it just snowballed. I was a DJ for a while at the same club. So I'd DJ and then I'd, you know, be playing in the band as well. And um, that led to another club where it was a brand new club out in Pitt Meadows called Roosters. And and from there, that was really another turning point for me because I was DJing, but I was also known as the singing DJ and I'd get up with the band and my band would play there every couple months for the week. And, um, And then we started doing a Sunday night thing, which was a regular uh, every Sunday, uh, for about two and a half years that grew and grew and grew to the point where there'd be lineups of people out the door at seven o'clock that never got in because the place was jammed. Yeah. And, um, I met a few people along the way and they're, they're saying, you know, you got to turn this into something because there is definitely something here. And this is almost 10 years later after this competition. And, uh, so we did, we started doing some recording and, um, it turned into a little bit of airplay here and there across the country. And, and I was like, you know, it's cool. I'm, I've got music on the radio. Wild. Yeah. But then in 2001, uh, a competition one more time. And I was really reluctant to go in and I'm like, I hate competitions. Yeah. I just hate the feeling of, you know, not winning. Yeah. Um, and uh, that one was, uh, it was called Project Discovery. And it was uh, CCMA, Canadian Country Music Association, uh and the SOCAN and Factor, they were all a part of yeah. putting this together. And uh, I ended up winning that in awesome. the, the Canadian finals in Calgary. And I think one of the reasons why is because my fan base was built up so much in Vancouver yeah. in the area. And even we played Calgary and Edmonton a couple times too. So that when it came time to, uh, to um, be in the finals in Calgary at the Palace Theater, um, I think the next closest person that had people there was the local guy mm-hmm. and uh he had about eight or ten people come and support him yeah i had 350 wow they they actually chartered two WestJet planes no way yeah to get there and it was unreal so my performance might not have been the greatest that night but i'll be damned if those judges didn't want to make the wrong decision because it could have been mayhem for them it could have been chaos so how did that get put together how did that group of people end up flying out i mean that was yeah. obviously you built up a, a huge following mm. here in bc um was just kind of fan based and this kind of got put together or um it was i know. mean it was i i i like making friends yeah and not only was I playing, but I was also socializing with everybody. I was the DJ too, right? Yeah. So I was constantly socializing with all kinds of people. And uh, when that time came and I saw that sort of response, it was like, I know everybody that's here. We're all friends. So yeah. it was more than just being a fan of my music and the band and 
and whatever. It was more that I had that many friends and a bunch of family coming out. And that's really I think awesome. that's just it. I connect, I, I've connected as much as possible, especially back then and try to now with social media, but uh, yeah, I just, I just connected and I saw the results with all these 300 plus people yeah. came all that way to, to support. That's pretty awesome. You, you don't see that very much. No. no, not in something like that. No, no. no. So where did that take you after the competition's done? You, you won that. Yeah. Um, did that lead to something record wise for you? Yeah. Well, we did, uh, myself and Mitch Merritt was my mm-hmm. guitar player and, and, uh, uh, manager, interim manager at that point, we were just starting trying to develop and keep in mind, this is 2001. Yeah. So I was 30 years old and like I said, we recorded a few songs and, um, uh, from that, I got to record another song paid for by Factor. Got to shoot a video paid for by CMT for that single. Yeah. And that was the first real... I'd never done a video to that point. So um, Stephen Goldman, who's passed away since, uh, was the director on it and did this cool little artsy thing for a song called Consider This. And it was my first real radio single that radio took seriously. My first video ever. And... Uh, uh, from then, we we also won $10,000. So we're thinking, well, we could split it between the band or we could take that money and put it into recording. So we recorded four more songs. Yeah. And uh, from that, we had You Can't Say I Didn't Love You and uh, a few other songs that we shot videos for and, and uh, released as singles. And slowly but surely, by 32, I'd had my first real kind of hit song with uh, New Frontier. It's nice back in that day when there was that money to, to make videos with CMT. Yeah. And yeah, I remember everyone was making videos and there's always, you know, a nice payment to be able to, to do that. Now, obviously that has disappeared. Yeah. Well, video industries kind of disappeared to some degree. I mean, it's important to have one and it's still viable, but not, not on CMT as much at Um, all. No, no. And you know, back then the budget budget for my first video was $50,000. Yeah. Budget for my second video is thirty five, forty thousand, and and then slowly over the years, like we do, <laughs> cat out of the bag, but we do them for much, much less now. Yeah, and we get the same sort of results, but you're not getting any, um, you're not getting paid for them anymore. So no. it's it's tough to to, to validate to doing it, a yeah. video, yeah, and saying, oh well, we're we're gonna make lots of money off it. You make nothing off of videos yeah. unless you get over a certain amount on views on YouTube, and yeah. even then, you still don't see much back. No, it's just like a form of advertising. It is. It's a, it's a business card. That's what I say. Yeah. It's a business card to try and get the, the people out to the shows. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Back in the day it was, well, I guess it's kind of like, um, recording now. I mean, back 20 years ago, you were going into big studios, yeah. um, paying a lot of money. Uh, and the same thing with video, you had to have the big equipment. Now you can shoot videos with you know, a DSLR and I've uh, seen them with iPhones. Yeah. And they're not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's you can pretty, edit them. Yeah. And it's nice. Now you can record at home. Um, I mean, it's a much cheaper process yeah. uh, than it used to be. Um, yeah. I remember seeing people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on albums yeah. that now you could do for 10, you know, it's, yeah. and they Absolutely. would, they would take that money and they would record for, there's this great story where, um, I forget the band and, uh, they were, they spent like $500,000 on this album Wow! and they took it into the record company and they didn't like it. They said, you know, you have to redo a bunch of stuff. 
And it, at that time, it's part of the, just the the record company exec wanting to put his finger on it, right? Right. So they got a bunch more money, like another hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And they went into the studio and brought in pool tables, a car, <laughs> and all this stuff. And they just spent the whole hundred thousand dollars on partying. Wow. Then they took the same project, the same masters, resubmitted them. And they said, great, much better. (laughs) The record executive thought it was much better. Yeah, "Yeah, that sounds way better. Uh, Thank you for doing that. And they just blew away all the $100,000. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. But that's, you know. We've done that too. Yeah. yeah, In the past, we've we've submitted an album. And uh, I remember actually CMT, uh, we we submitted a video. That's what it was. It wasn't the music. But we submitted a video with a certain edit. Uh, they sent it back and said, um, "Well, we need to see some changes." They didn't; they weren't specific on any scenes or anything like that. Took about another week and a half. Submitted the same video, and they said that's way better. Oh, yeah. Isn't that frustrating? <laughs> Why would you, yeah, <laughs> oh, it's just ridiculous. But you know what? That's the thing too is that nowadays you really got to watch out for the labels spending money because they'll spend money and the artists owe it back. Yeah. And nowadays you're not making much money from record sales because there is no real CD sales or, or uh, you know, and the online sales just aren't enough to to uh, make any money off of all the record labels are basically making all that money back. So uh, they better be good because your live show better be good too because that's where you're making your money these days. Yeah, it's tough now because everyone's dipping in like crazy and yeah. it's it's all off the top. So uh, I know that I'm not going to name the artist, but there's real popular artist that was touring just over the last year in Canada and I they were at a venue in Ontario and uh, the day of the show it's a small venue maybe 700 seats mm-hmm. the day of the venue uh, Ticketmaster still had or the, it was either Ticketmaster or management still had 100 tickets on hold mm-hmm. on hold just and they decided to last yeah yeah for themselves and the venue only seats 600 so the artist doesn't know no uh, they're not keeping track of that and that's their money i mean that's yeah that's the extra money they're going to make um and then last minute they decided to release them because they didn't need them right and it's like who's keeping check of that stuff right and it's just there's a lot of that going on you see and it's hard i mean you're busy you're you're out doing interviews you got to keep everything rolling and there's all these people looking after you yeah and you got to keep track of all those people um it's tough to do yeah because there is information that you're just not given yeah i was told once you're on a need to know basis and you don't need to know (laughs) what no i do need to know you do yeah i want to know but you know you don't always get that information until later no which is terrible but it's the industry so it's yeah uh, some of it you have to live with and and you know it, it is what it is but it's frustrating when you you see um you know, touring Canada is, it, it's difficult. Um, yeah. And, you know, you start carrying a bus or you start carrying a transport with you. You start wanting to compete and doing those big things. Um, that all adds up really, really quick. Yeah. And, you know, agent, manager, um, all those things uh, starts getting scraped off the top. It It's not much left over for the artist at the end no i mean i'm learning that with my tour coming up in january we go out for six weeks in january 
in February. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I take care of all those costs. So I'm, I'm budgeting for the bus and just my jaw is dropping. Yeah. You know, you see that, uh, that big number that you're making the, the, uh, the gross potential of, of the, the, uh, tour. And then you take off all these numbers, the, you know, uh, the, the agent management label take of gross as opposed to of net. Yeah. So you're taking before all the expenses are yeah, a yeah. big percentage and it's yeah. like, okay, well that's gone. Okay. And the bus is gone and the hotels and all these different costs. And then you're like, okay, well I think, uh, might be able to buy, you know, two weeks of groceries after I'm done. But at the same time, optically it looks great. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's gotta be an upside too. And eventually that does pay off. But in the meantime, the artist and most, most musicians don't know that, that are working for these artists and, uh, the label and management and, and agency, it's not like they don't really care, but you know, that's just the way it is. That That's the, that's the way it goes. So they don't realize that you're probably making the least out of everybody at the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah, nobody, I always, I always said, and I think I've mentioned in the podcast before, I think everyone on the team should take the leader's position for a while yeah. and, and look at, oh, it costs this or it costs that, or this would, you know, cause you, they always think it looks, how come we're staying here tonight? It's like, yeah. well, because it's a down day <laughs> yeah. and we're not making any money and the bus is costing, you yeah. know, two or three grand, grand a day and, um, there's production on the road and. Do you want to see my budget? Yeah. I, yeah. I've done a budget on yeah, yeah. You don't want to see it. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. So this is it back again. Um, sure. You finished that uh, second contest yeah. uh, that you won. Um, so got that first single and videos going. And uh, were you looking at uh, where you were you at the record deal at that point? Were you signed with anybody or? No, I wasn't signed directly to anybody, and I've never actually had a, a major label direct signing ever. Yeah. I've always been affiliated through another label, and uh, the first label that came on board was in 2005. I signed with uh, Fusion 3, which is um, a guy named Mike Denny was working for them at the time, and they had another label called Just In Time, which was more of a jazz label, and they'd never really you know, dipped into the country scene, but... Mike Denny had this uh, feeling. He's like, I, I really want to work with you guys. And we had, I think we had Sony. We had a couple other labels that were interested. But Mitch and I both had a feeling about Mike Denny. Yeah. There's something cool about this guy that he seems really motivated. As opposed to being lumped in with a bunch of other artists on a on a major label. So we uh, took a risk. And, and that was the Big Wheel album. Um, that again, every album that I do, even up to this day, I, I don't know. I can't see the the success that's going to happen from it. I'm just taking a chance. Um, and it turned out the big wheel, the single big wheel, even to this day is my most successful single at radio. It went to number two. I never got a number one song. Um, and a funny story behind the song big wheel. I I wrote it with Mitch and, uh, Daryl Burgess, who's a phenomenal writer and just an awesome guy. Uh, he, he co-wrote, uh, just came back to say goodbye for Colin James. And that was one of his big first hits. Yeah. Uh, he's written several since, but, uh, we wrote this song and after we wrote it in Nashville with Daryl, uh, I hated it. I couldn't stand this song. I thought this is garbage. And, uh, Mitch said, no, it's a, it's a great song. I think it's going to be a hit song. I'm like, no, it's no, there's no chance. Label heard it. They loved it. They wanted to release it as the first single, uh, and name the album after it. And I'm like, well, I guess that was fun career. I guess I'm done now. So, and it goes to radio and becomes my biggest hit so far 
uh, charting wise on on Canadian radio. So, uh, and then the success of that album, Mike was so motivated, like we thought he was, and pushed that record so hard, and we did extremely well on it. Uh, the following single was Hold My Beer. And the, the funny thing was is that Big Wheel did so well at radio. By the time we released Hold My Beer, um, it wasn't getting added right away. People loved the song. And they you know it was this sort of cult hit at first and then turned into a radio. Radio loved it, but they were playing Big Wheel so much yeah. for so long that uh, Hold My Beer only went to number 10. Uh, it hit top 10, but it, it didn't go to any higher because they were spinning both of them at the same time, oh, yeah. which was great, but There's at still the same lots time. of life on that. First yeah. Time, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that was, that was the next phase was working with, uh, fusion three and Mike Denny, who is now MDM Mike Denny music. So it's funny how you take a look at a lot of artists, big artists, they, they have huge songs, but that first one or two songs are always the songs that really people want to hear in a show. Yeah, you know the the new hit could be bigger, you could be number one, but you take a look at anybody, Garth or anybody. You want to hear those first couple songs yeah. mean a lot to everybody, um, and they're probably still really exciting to play because it just it, there's history and there's everything there. It's you know people really react to it. It's it's interesting, and I find it really cool that 12, 13 years later after releasing those singles, especially Hold My Beer. Hold My Beer is yeah. my, you know, it is my career song. I don't think I'll ever have another Hold My Beer. And very few people get that anthem song yeah. like a Friends in Low Places for Garth Brooks, for example, or Chattahoochee, like I said, with uh, Alan Jackson. Um, very few people get that song uh, that resonated so much. And the, the really great effect now is back then when I, I released it, um, I had parents coming up to me saying, my two-year-old singing this song won't stop singing Hold My Beer, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old. But what I'm seeing now, 13, 14 years later almost, uh, is that those kids that were singing that back then are coming to the shows. Oh, yeah. So I'm seeing these, you know, late teens, early 20s kids that loved the song as a kid and coming out to the shows and singing along and, you know, chanting along to Hold My Beer. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I know we used to play with uh, with Jason McCoy and and it you know Dixieland was yeah that song you always almost have to end with Born again yeah Dixieland. yeah and he's had lots of huge success of other songs but that's that one song that kind of you know it's kind of his anthem song to some yeah. some extent and everyone sort of seems to have you know a song may not be the anthem song um, but yeah it's neat to be able to have that in your repertoire. To, you, sure is. You probably end with that one, right? Always, yeah. yeah. We we uh, we do something special with it too. We do a, a medley of of different songs leading up to it to get people into singing along, and then. Yeah. But actually, the first time um, we released that, I think in May of two thousand six, and uh, in June or early July, we were playing it at uh, uh, Dauphin's Country Fest in Manitoba, in Dauphin, and. I didn't know if anybody would know this song yet. I didn't know how it was doing on radio. I wasn't following it that closely thinking, well, you know, it's kind of a dumb song, but you know, people might like it. There might be some, some sort of an effect from it, but whatever. So we, we came off stage and we're ready to do the encore, which was big wheel. And then we were going to teach them hold my beer. And as I got off stage, my tour manager at the time, Carmen came up to me and she's like, I had in ear buds on. So she's like, pull your buds out of your ears. So why? 
I pulled him out and all I could hear was, oh, my bear. Oh, my bear. 20,000 people wow. in the grandstand, you know, chanting, hold my bear. And I was like, that's OK. This song really is hitting. Yeah. And it, yeah, it was one of those moments where I just got shivers, actually. Yeah. Uh, that you, you, you know, you, you realize, wow, I've made a made a bit of an effect in, the, in this industry. And uh, all I wanted was one single on radio and one video ever. And, yeah. you know, here it was several in and, and then having that sort of an effect. And it still does, it still has that effect. So when that song was done or you were, it's big, in the back of your mind, were you thinking, how am I going to top this one? Um, or were you not worried about it? No, I think a lot of people do think that. Mm-hmm. A lot of artists go, okay, well, you know, um, not to compare, you know, the popularity of the song, but Carly Rae Jepsen, for example, with Call Me Maybe. I wonder if she thought, wow, am I going to be able to top this? And she's released songs since that, you know, just haven't had that effect yeah. that Call Me Maybe has. And that was an international smash hit. Um, but no, I, I thought after that, I was like, okay, cool. This is great. But I have other music that I think is going to be uh, accepted just as well. And every now and then I'd put out a song like, uh, like light it up or uh, let's get rowdy that I thought was one of those anthem sort of things. Yeah. And it, it did, it worked, but it nothing to the extent of hold my beer, but I've accepted the idea that I'll probably never have another hold my beer, no matter how hard I try. And, uh, I'm good with that. I'm, I don't want to be known for too many of those songs, you yeah. know, because you want those serious songs. You want those, uh, just as fun songs, but, um, I have no problem. And I think Garth Brooks, for example, not to compare myself to Garth, but, uh, I think Garth Brooks would be the same person is like, I I'm happy with that one. And that's all I really need for that yeah. for, to have the, uh, the crowd going crazy for that one song and then singing along to all the other ones that, that, uh, he put out as well. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still releasing music that people are singing along to like worth a shot and hopefully better when I do the new single. Uh, I hope they have the same effect that people are singing along to them, but they're always looking for us to play. Hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, you, I love it. Yeah. You, if you get tired of it or it's, it's, you know, that's tough, but it seems like, you know, you've, you've, it's good because you, you've accepted that yeah. in a way that, and it's important you have to. Um, cause you see a lot of people, they just keep chasing that, mm. that one song and it's, it's tough, you know, it's really difficult for them. You see them just go to go downhill and, and yeah. they just, they're fighting for that. You know, I want another one of those. I want another one of those. And, uh, uh, not me. Yeah. That's no. really, that's it's really cool. great. I look forward to playing it at the end of the night too, at the end of the show. It's the, you know, I love playing all my other music and having people sing along and know them, Yeah, but hold my beer is that one song that I'm always really looking forward to playing. And, uh, yeah, we save it for the very end, not to give anything away in the show, but we save it for the very end. And it's, it's always, it's a great way to end off the show. And I'm always, you know, vibrating and just ecstatic that people were singing along to it. I remember years ago I saw the Mavericks and there were maybe four singles in, um, maybe five. Um, and I can't remember the name of the song, but it was a big, big hit on the radio at the time was their biggest and they led their show with it. Really? Yeah. And I sat there, it's like, wow, that's awesome and, and bizarre then, all at the same time. Yeah. But I think because th- their thought, maybe because we're in, it was up in Canada, maybe people know us. Right. Let's give them something See, that, they, that know. they really know. Right? Yeah. 
and capture them right off the top mm-hmm. and then we'll just do our regular stuff and they didn't button it at the end with that same song again um they just right off the shoot there's this is their her biggest song right off the top and i think i've never seen anyone do that i've had that suggested about hold my beer several times why don't you start with hold my beer i mean really get them into it i was like no they know it's coming yeah you don't want to you know blow it all at the very beginning and then you know have good songs for the rest of it that they might be able to sing along to but they and then somebody also had suggested uh why don't you bookend the show with it and i've seen other bands do that with their big hits they start with them and then end with them and i think it's really anticlimactic at the very end yeah, to do I it so again yeah i always save the best for last and i try and start it off with a bang and end it off with a bigger bang and then leave them wanting more so yeah it's a good idea so obviously working a lot in bc if you ever thought I mean, it's it's different, you know, out here than it is. Yeah, I find the rest of the country. It's you know, you're separated by those mountains, right? Yeah. And uh, so, have you ever felt any positive negatives about being a West Coast uh, singer, or compared to being anywhere else? I, I feel nowadays that you know, I felt Ontario for quite a while kind of was leading the pack. A lot of the musicians, a lot of the singers, was, all coming yeah. from Ontario. Now it's really shifted west. Um, where, you know, it seems like a lot of the hot players now from the West and, um, you know, it's really come on. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really come on strong. I, I think it's, I think it's really great. Did you ever feel that, okay, I'm from BC. I have to fight a little harder. I first, when I first got into the industry and releasing music, uh, people were going, you're from Vancouver. How can a Vancouver guy be a country artist? Yeah. Um, kind of like I was looking at people from Toronto in that area. I'm like, how could those people be country artists? It's, you know, it's big smoke. Yeah. Um, but back in that time frame, between 1993 and 2004, there was more live venues to play in Vancouver for country music than there was in Calgary and Edmonton combined. Yeah. And they were really surprised by that. Um, so there was a lot of, a lot of places for us to cut our teeth. And I was really the first, um, big artist i guess out of out of vancouver at bc that really hit um up to that point yeah since there's been you know chad brownlee dallas smith and madeline merlot at the time and all these different artists that come out of vancouver and in british columbia um but yeah a lot of people were questioning it at first and then they listened to the music and they're like wow this is really cool where which producer did you use in nashville or which studio did you record in nashville i said Actually, I used Tom McKillop, who's from Maple Ridge, British Columbia, and we recorded at the warehouse in Vancouver, warehouse yeah. studio. So uh, people were really shocked by that. And and I think, not that I changed the industry, but I've had radio people come up and go, wow, New Frontier changed the face of Canadian country radio with uh, Canadian country music. And I, I didn't realize it at the time. And they said, and especially the fact that you recorded it all and used Canadian players producers and studios and I was like well I just went with what I thought was right made the right sound and ever since then you're seeing a lot of artists um, producing and and recording and using producers from Canada all over the country yeah and we we can produce this as good as Nashville absolutely Um, you know I always have people say oh we got to go to Nashville to record I said no you don't Uh, you can do you can do just as great up here um I think there was a time at one point where a lot of radio uh, people were looking at 
who was playing on it, where it was recorded and who produced it. Yeah. I don't know if that happens as much anymore because it's more of a, you know, everyone, every station's owned by one big company anyway. So it's not as if you have to individually get every radio station to kind of play your song anymore. Right. It's, it's a different thing. I think back at a certain time, uh, programmers really looked at that. And if it came from Nashville, um, had a bit of merit to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't think that is the case as much anymore. And I think part of it too is that Canadians have proved that um, we can produce, you know, really great music here and not have to go to Nashville. And, you know, back in the day, I remember everyone would go to Nashville, record, and then they come back up to Canada and re record the album <laughs> yeah. to make uh, Canadian content regulations. And it's, just, and it's like what you heard in Canada was the $5,000 version yeah. of the album, not the $50,000 version. And nobody really knew it, you know? No. It, it was bizarre. Yeah. Uh, Rick Hutt, I think, was, uh, you know, back in Ontario recording Beverly Mahood, Jason, I think, and maybe Jason Berry was doing a lot of production at the time for Jason McCoy. Um, his sound was, you know, as American as he could possibly get it. Uh, and we we sort of took that idea and went well let's let's even try and amp it up even further because all the guys that I was working with Tom McKillop for example was lived in Nashville for several years yeah. and learned their systems and learned their sounds so he was kind of the guy who was a little further ahead and yeah um, we we bucked the stereotype w- with guys like Rick Hutt and with Tom McKillop where we went you know what we can make just as great album as you know we're not going to be having the hundred thousand dollar budget for an album but we've got 50 and we can make a really great record that is you know pretty close to the sound of the americans that are getting airplay at the time and uh and it started snowballing and then everybody started realizing wow we've got some amazing players here with some killer studios you know the armory for example in vancouver i've only ever recorded in vancouver um and the warehouse was a world-class studio, Brian Adams studio that was phenomenal. Um, so, you know, when we started using that and changing radio's mind and, and, you know, like you said, the, the Canadian content, that maple MAPL, yeah. uh, you have to have two out of four of those. Well, now you're seeing three and four, uh, of those little pizza pies colored. So it's, it's pretty awesome to see. And, um, I'm glad that I was a part of that shift you know, in that time period yeah. that made people realize we can do it up here. Yeah. I, I worked with Rick for years. I was, I worked at Cedar tree and, uh, um, I learned a lot from Rick, um, and that whole team there. Um, and we're doing Jamie's albums and Bev. And I remember working with Bev when she was like 13, Just 14. Kid, yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, she still is a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I know <laughs> we've been, we've been chatting about, doing a podcast we'd have a lot because i we grew up a lot at the same time and yeah and uh i know a lot about her beginning uh years and stuff and um but yeah it, it's it's nice that it's the recording industry is really growing and mm-hmm. um and you know you can go and lay your beds down at a great studio come back and just work on your vocals on yourself i know, you know it's so great being able to do that you can yeah. do it anywhere i mean here we are in a restaurant <laughs> As long as you have a computer. Yeah. Away <laughs> you go. It's pretty awesome. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's really changed how, uh, how people can, uh, produce their album and just, it saves a lot of money too. I mean, yeah. I, I can give a per- perfect example. My last two records that I've made, um, I still call them records, yeah, I know. even though they're not, I mean, they've been on vinyl, but, uh, not many people buy them. Um, 
when we do an album, when Scott Cook is my producer, uh, Scotty Chops, when when he produces a, an album, basically all I do is send him the song, the demo, um, from his computer or at home. He'll lay down the beds that he needs, and then uh, flies it as he calls them. Sends basically an email to a guitar player wherever, yeah. Toronto, across the street. The guy will play on the track, send it back. And before you know it, we've got this production that nobody's actually even left their home. Um, I come in and do a vocal at Scott's house because he's got this really cool setup in this tiny little room, uh, which would be considered a closet in most places. Uh, I do the vocals. And before you know it, we've got this big sounding production that people are thinking, wow, you must have gone to a huge studio and recorded this. Meanwhile, like I said, you don't even have to leave your bed if you don't want to uh, in order to do this. So... Productions definitely changed from those days where we were at the warehouse for, you know, a month and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, coming up with these really great live studio sounding uh, uh, albums. And then, you know, they still sound like that, but they're all done <laughs> remotely. Yeah. I, I mean, I like both ways. Yep. Um, so do I. There's things I miss now about I like being there when someone puts something down. Yeah. And it's neat to be able to send it. And, and it comes back and it's like, okay, wow, that's really good. But then so, oh, there's always that time you've been in the studio in front of a player and they play something that they're not thinking is any good. Right. But all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that lick you just did there. You always wonder, did I miss that, right? It was If I wasn't there, did I miss something that I could have got? But, you know. It's, I'm positive it, it does happen for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but then again, it's nice not to have to sit for forever and yeah. go through the process. And and yeah, I I hated the uh, the long, long, long. Well, again, it's it's the same as doing a shooting a movie or yeah. TV show as an actor. You're waiting. And for me as a singer, I'm I'm listening to, you know, maybe 25 percent of the day that you're in a studio is actual, um, you know, recording time. Yeah, that's what I found. A lot of it's set up. A lot of it's going through charts, and a lot of it's you know details that are by napped I think most of the time I was in a studio you know laying on a couch but there is an element too of the hang I love hanging with these guys I love sitting behind the board and listening to what they're creating you know in that 25% of the day but man it it, you you miss that that's what I missed mostly Um, I gotta tell you a cool story about my first experience in a studio an actual studio it was the warehouse um, we managed to, uh, to get it to record four songs. I thought, well, this is crazy. This is Brian Adams studio. It's awesome. But what I didn't realize was a reputation that it carried and, and people wanted to record there. So my very first time in a studio, I'm, uh, I walk in and talking to people upstairs from us was ACDC uh-huh. mixing an album. Yeah. I can't remember what album it was. This, this is 2003, 2002. Downstairs is REM (laughs) adding uh, uh, extra vocals and all kinds of overdubs. And then the next week is Elton John and we're still there when Elton John's in the tracking room and we're upstairs. And I was like, wow, this is my first experience here. And, uh, and then you get to see, you know, Nickelback was just starting to hit really back then. And Chad was there quite a bit. Uh, doing certain yeah. things and it was just like wow this is my first introduction to the industry of people that I listened to my entire life and holding a really high regard musically and uh, 
that was that was really cool. Since then, I mean, you know, the the studios just aren't used like that anymore. No. So not near as much. But it was a great, really great first experience to go. Well, I, I feel like I'm actually in this industry now. It's interesting when you're recording, spending a long time uh, working on on things. I always find that you can always overthink yeah. things, and I think that's the thing with nowadays. You just kind of get right at it, which is really, really good. And that ends up being most of the time your best material. I always find that. I always make sure you're recording that, even if it's just a first run through. Yeah. Sometimes you get just that magic that happens um, on the first take. And there's been a couple times I was just, you know, oh, let's just run it and and you see what happens. Yeah, and just and we'll get to recording in a minute, and then it passes. It's like oh damn, I should have recorded that one. <laughs> well, I did that like once or twice and never happened again. I'll always be ready to record. Scott Cook for me was that guy that said, you know, the first time you sang into a microphone that I heard, I knew the next time you sang, I have to press record. And from then on, it doesn't matter. Because he said, your first takes are usually your best takes. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're, you're just running. You're not thinking, overthinking anything. And then when you're by the fifth or sixth take he said you've you've overthought things too much by that point so i'm always i go in the studio now um for these last singles that i recorded uh it's only six songs it's an ep um out on the town is the lead or it's not the lead single it's the title track on the album and uh i did one one take on that and he said that's all we need yeah it's good we're great you knew what you were looking for when you came in and and we don't need anything else and that's what you hear on the on the actual album. So, uh, whereas with Tom McKillop, when I was recording with him, we would go through, uh, a song, you know, recording a vocal for a single and, and it would be 12, 15, 20 times. And yeah. then we'd comp it or not comp it. We'd, we'd, uh, do pieces of the song yeah. at a time. And that would take, you know, five, six hours to do one song sometimes, which was just grueling. And by the end of it, I can barely talk and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And you know, my level of, of energy for the song is done. Yeah. Uh, we'd always come up with a good comp, but um, now it's just like I come in and boom, one, two, maybe three takes, comp that together, got ourselves a song. It's like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. And part of that probably is experience too. And, yeah. and, and done it Confidence. A, a bunch of times. Yeah. I know with clients in the past. Um, yeah. I don't like taking 20 takes. I'd rather three, four, if it's feeling, yeah, okay, let's, let's jump to this song and yeah. let's do a couple. Let's jump over to this song. And then if it's not feeling well, it's like, all right, well, we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. And then fresh again the next day and see if it's, cause sometimes it's just, you're not in a good mood or you're not focused. You're not, mm-hmm. you know, something's happening at home or all those things. And all of a sudden it affects your vocal completely. Yeah. And the next day you can come in and bam, it's the first time. And it's like, okay, that's what we wanted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've had that many times. Personal life plays a huge role in, in your energy and, and emotion that you're putting into a song, especially if it's a slower song. Yeah. You know, we've had days, I've had days with Scott where, you know, I was living on an Island and I, it took me a long time to get over to Langley to record the vocal and get in there. And within two or three takes, it's like today's not the day. Yeah. And just walk out, go, okay, tomorrow or next week. And then come back and it's one take, two takes, you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a good producer to know, you got to know somebody. And it's like, you're almost part psychiatrist mm-hmm. uh, as a producer, I think. You, you know, so those times you have to sit and, you know, find out, hey, what's going on? And yeah. I always like to do that. Just someone comes in, hey, how's it going? You get a feel how the person is. Yeah. Uh, then you have in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, what are we going to do today? Then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. I remember with with McCoy once we were recording vocals, and I can't remember he's uh, there was lots of stuff going on, and with him he wasn't just focusing on what he had to do, and and it, it was I can't remember what song it was. Uh, so I was like, all right, it's uh, it's a real high energy song. So that's um, it was like two o'clock, and I knew there was a matinee starting down the road on, at the movie theater, and it was. I got to remember what song it was or what movie it was. Um, it was a real action movie. Yeah. I said, let's go see that. And he's like, really? I said, yeah. So we went, saw the movie and we both walked out just pumped. Right. And it was just like, yeah, that was a great movie. And I just floored it all the way back to the studio. <laughs> and we went in and that first take, we got it right. It was like, he just cleared his oh, mind. Awesome. He was focused on that. It was pumped up. Yeah. And I was like, there it is. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes that's what it, you know, that's a little motivation. It, yeah. Some motivation. Yeah. I've definitely come in overthinking a song before I even start singing it. Uh, that can play a role, but yeah, when you, when, when there's other motivational, you know, reasons for it, you can get a great, great performance Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So live shows, um, yep. how, how do you approach putting your live shows together? I know it's, they're pretty high energy, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Very high energy. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'm wringing my shirt out from all the sweat. It's disgusting, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I like to run around the stage and I was, I, I, I did play guitar on stage for a while, you know, and thinking, well, this needs to be in my show because I want people to see that I can play an instrument of some kind, even though not great. Um, but I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm more about the energy towards the crowd and I need to you know, be with them. I need to meet to make them feel like I'm in the crowd with them and that they're up on stage with me. So I just drop my guitar and run around the stage now. And, um, there are moments obviously where we have to slow it down and some songs are, uh, you know, one of mama's boy me to daddy's girl is one of those emotional songs that you got to slow it down. But people like that. Yeah. Uh, they like the, you know, diversity in, in, uh, songs. And then, you know, when you hit the, the slower times, the energy doesn't drop. It's, uh, it's kind of cool. Like you, we, we've managed to, and I think it's a really great testament to how hard the guys in the band work, um, and know what the, they understand the crowd as well. Yeah. Um, they don't lose any energy when we're playing a slower song. So yeah, it's pretty nonstop. And like I said, I always try to start it off with the big bang and put it right in their face. And then, uh, by the end of it, they're, they're screaming and chanting, hold my beer and <laughs> leave them wanting, wanting us to come back. That's cool. Do you find you, uh, change your set at all as you're going different places or depending where you're playing and, uh, or do you keep it kind of locked in? This is what we're doing. It's, oh, I change the set constantly. And I think that's, uh, that's something I really involve the band in because I really want them to be a part of, you know, how it feels for them on stage, plus guitar changes and things like that. But, uh, as I get a new single, for example, so better when I do is the new single just came out this past week. Um, it's already in the set, but where do we put it in the set and what do we have to move in order to make it make sense? So I've, I've always, I've always wanted to have great structure to a set and I never wanted to repeat the exact same set for too long because I don't want to, if I went to Peterborough, you know, a year and a half ago and now I'm back, I don't want them hearing the same set and thinking, well, this is, I've seen bands do that and it's too predictable and it's, there's nothing, you know, exciting about a set list that's exactly the same. So I constantly change the set and then inject different things into it, uh, you know, moments that I don't repeat, uh, try not to repeat for too long the same things I said or same jokes or same, uh, uh, you know, introductions to a song that 
uh, has like a, a track introduction of some kind. Um, Shane is great for that. He's amazing at it, actually. And he breaks down the set as well and goes, well, you know what? Before this song, we should do this. We should have this like for for a little while we had uh, uh, Suntan City, which is a, a single of mine that was a <clears throat> a uh, Luke Bryan song. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of it, there's this cowbell. So Shane was like, you know, what we should do we should do that before anybody else did it. Uh, we should do uh, that. Uh, um, you know, I got a fever. The only prescription is more cowbell. And we did it and everybody loved it. Mm-hmm. But again, you can't do that for too long. So, yeah. you know, inject these kind of fun little things and keep them interested and excited. It's good that you have a good involvement with your band that way. Yeah. Um, it's important, I think, because uh, it makes them feel more a part of the show as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of acts who, you know, their band is separate from them and, um, yeah. and you feel Not that, me. yeah, you can really, really feel that, but uh, yeah, we're a family. Yeah. We've, we've all said that we're a tight family and have each other's backs. You know, nobody's too hard on each other. And when there's anything that goes wrong, for example, or somebody plays a bad note, it's like, that's eh, no big deal. It's just, yeah. you know, we'll get through it, whatever the case is. And, and I'm not an artist that's like, well, I'm the artist. You know, I, I do have to make a lot of decisions, so they always call me boss. As yeah. you know, but it's always tongue in cheek. I think. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to it, that my my band or our band has to be all involved with each other uh, about that show, yeah. and even off stage. You know, we all have to be on the same page when we're traveling together, and uh, we do. We are. We we're a family. Yeah, it's good. You can tell even social media wise. You can tell when you're on the road. Everyone's yeah. You know, having a good time, and it. You can just see it yeah. uh, without having to even be there. So that's good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It's pretty great. So you got uh, some new music out now. Mm-hmm. Um, what's kind of in the future for you looking next year or two down the road? Well, there's lots uh, riding on the success of Dirt Road Enum from 2016. Uh, 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 well, Out of the Blue was another big hit, Mama's Boy. Uh, and then released Worth a Shot earlier this year that just rode the charts like i mean i think big wheel was the only other major successful single like worth a shot's been um and then uh the new single came out like i said better when i do just uh on wednesday this past wednesday and um the album is due out in january which it it coincides with the tour on the same day actually january 11th uh the the album's being released or the ep six song ep and uh, from then we'll just uh, we'll tour across Canada, right from Vancouver Island all the way out to Nova Scotia within about six weeks, and uh, and then keep the ball rolling. We got another single or two off of this EP, and who knows? I mean, at this age, I know that you know a lot of people don't consider me old, but I I've been around the industry for a long time, and yeah. <clears throat> to get this airplay that I'm getting, and still being relevant and having success uh is is a really great feeling and it's all i know how to do anyways i just like to go out and entertain people and and try and put on a show and have them sing along to the songs that i hope they know from radio and uh and from you know itunes and spotify and all these different uh online formats um and just keep going i I think i'll be 90 years old singing hold my beer maybe hold my oxygen tank by that point (laughs) (laughs) hold my boost yeah The, uh, so have you have you ever spent much time working or worrying about being successful in the U.S. or it's never been really too uh, important to you? Or no, I think back in the late '90s, I really wanted to try and explore that. I, 
I really had a major um, decision to make back in about 97, 98. And at that point, I had two kids married. Yeah. And uh, well, I have three kids now, three boys. Um, but I only had two. And I was like, I, I don't know if I want this. You know, what does this mean for my family, first and foremost? My career may take off. Who knows? But, yeah. you know, that might take a long time. It may never happen. Um, but the risk I was taking that I thought was more important was with the family. Do I want to take my family and transplant them to the States? Uh, I was never a huge fan of the States, to be honest with you. And just and in Nashville, I didn't know the culture. Um, I didn't understand what uh, the city was all about. I just knew it was country music industry. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really want to take that away from my boys. Uh, I wanted them growing up <clears throat> to be Canadian kids, you know, yeah. and like I did. I grew up in a small town and uh, I didn't want them to lose their identity as Canadian kids. And they didn't. They've they've grown up being amazing men now and uh, they got to be in the Canadian culture. They're huge hockey fans. They yeah. play street, street hockey. They, you know, uh, love Canadian music they, and they're in music themselves uh, also. So. Um, yeah, I, I, and people still ask me, even at, even at this age, people are still asking me, so you, are you, do you tour in the States or have you ever, or are you planning on it? Or you, do you still want to go and try and get your music onto radio in the States? I have zero desire to do that. I love being a Canadian artist. I love touring Canada. Um, and now, you know, as, as my career continues on, but you know, maybe in the last 10 years or so of, of having that sort of relevance and success. Um, I'm okay with doing 30 shows a year uh, as opposed to constantly touring in the States, Yeah, you know, and the, the, the side effects, even from the Canadian industry, there's negative side effects. It's, it's, you know, ruined many things in my life, just being on the road constantly, even though it's only Canada, yeah. uh, not ruined, but just really affected them in a negative way. So now that's being a Canadian artist, um, uh, still and not touring as much. It's great. Cause now I focus way more on my family and way more on my friends than I ever did before. So I have no desire to go to the States and That's never good. really have. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, there's a lot of artists that have done that, gone to the States and the majority of them all just ended back <laughs> in Canada again. Right. I mean, you've had a little bit of success. It's such a hard market to break. Yeah. And, um, it's almost nowadays it's, if you can make it in Canada, which you've done a really fantastic job at, I, I think it's almost more of a accomplishment that you didn't have to go to the States to get where you are now. That's, and yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it is because you know, everyone just thought, well, you have to go to Nashville. You have to have a big song there to be right. recognized in Canada and accepted to a certain degree. And it's, you know, it's changed there quite a bit. Uh, and you see a lot of Canadian artists doing big tours. Yeah. And they have big songs in Canada and nobody knows who they are in the, in the U.S. Yeah. And that's great. And that's fine. I mean, I'd rather have that than have a little bit of success in Nashville. Yeah. And then have to come back and just kind of keep it going because it almost feels like you're defeated to some degree or right it's 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 hard it's it's mentally hard i think for people to very mentally yeah it's very mentally hard i've I've seen people go through it in the states and you you know you can get your um one percent of the population or one percent of of singers and and artists 
get to have their songs on the radio in the States and Canada. Yeah. And then out of those in the States, there's only 1% that actually get to become big stars and, you know, tour for the rest of their lives. I, I wasn't willing to take that chance. I still thought, well, you know what? I, if, even if I'm in Canada, I can stay in the music industry somehow. Um, if I stop being a touring artist and recording artist that, that gets songs on the radio down there, it's a little tougher. Like I've seen artists that had, you know, pretty decent success, but they're working jobs now Yeah, because they have to. Whereas in Canada, you can still stay in the industry if you, you know, if you do it right. So yeah. And, and they always do come back. Uh, I think majority of them anyways. Yeah. I know few stayed, several but, that have stayed. Yeah. But, uh, even then they're staying, but they're not, well, they, you know, I wouldn't say that they're extremely successful still. And, and some of them do have day jobs now, yeah. which is kind of weird. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, like I said, uh, kudos to you for sticking it in here in Canada and really making Thanks. it successful. And, um, I think it's smart and it's nice to be able to be a Canadian and be a Canadian artist. And now, you know, like I said, not worry about having to yeah. do that in America. It's a money drain and it's a mental drain and it's, um, it's, and it's fun touring Canada. Sure. I love touring Canada. It's, I mean, yeah. it's a pain in the but but <laughs> well especially when you gotta travel in january and february yeah. through i'm going across canada and it's it's you know that's not the very exciting thing it's a but, smart time to tour that's yeah you know that's the time to go out um when people need to get out yeah yeah absolutely yeah. they want to be able to you know get out of the uh the confinements of winter and, and uh, yeah. yeah have a good time so yep well uh i know we're we're getting on here but um I appreciate uh, you dropping by and and spending some time and uh, it was interesting podcast for sure and, and it's uh, been my pleasure. It's uh, hopefully uh, I know you're going to be down in Ontario on your tour, so hopefully I am going to be home. I think so. Oh yeah, I'll come out. Please come out and see. Love to see come, the show. Yeah, we'll get you into the show. Yeah, it'd be fun. Well, once again, uh, what's the best way to find uh, you on the interwebs? Oh, there's lots of different ways. Believe me, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> uh, well, with obviously with the social media, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, it's just Aaron Prochette. Um, I have a website, aaron-prochette.com. And if you're looking for tickets on the tour, go there. Uh, the, all the links for all the shows are up there. And if we're in your area or close, come on down. So it starts uh, January what? January 11th is the yeah. first show in Sydney uh, near Victoria yeah. on Vancouver Island. And then uh, we do stops all over British Columbia, going Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec. We've got a couple shows oh, nice. in Quebec. And ended in uh, Nova Scotia and on, uh, I think it's February 24th is the last show. Awesome. Well, success on that. And uh, success on the uh, next uh, few years in your career. And it's been uh, lots of fun chatting. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Thanks Ben. Thanks, <laughs> Ben.